Bibles tonight, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes once again. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to begin where we left off uh, a couple, well, three weeks ago, I guess, uh, in verse 16. So we're going to be picking up Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Blessing to be back tonight as we open our hearts to what God has to say. I hope and I pray that our, our study of Ecclesiastes will help us to get a better, fuller perspective on life that will be encouraging. You know, I've, uh, I've heard some, you know, talking about Ecclesiastes. It's a woe is me kind of book, ain't it? Woe is me. It kind of reminds you of hee-haw, you know. Um, it's just gloom and gloom and despair, right? No, not really, because it's helping us to understand the real perspective we ought to have about life. Things in this world are not all that important after all. The things outside of this world, the spiritual things, including and especially including God himself and his will, is more important, much more important, much more valuable. In fact, it's all that really matters. Who at my door is standing will be the song of invitation, 344, after our study tonight. We have been in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we have brought ourselves through the point in time in which we have noted all things, there's an appointed time for them, and all things are beautiful in their time. God has a purpose for everything that's done under heaven. Now, we may not understand what these purposes are. We may not be able to see the beginning from the end like God can. In fact, I know we can't. But God can. And we need to place our trust and confidence in Him. As we think about our study tonight, we're going to be building on what we've already talked about. Again, the main focus of the book is that the things in this temporal world are temporary and they are vanity. It's like chasing the wind. You know, it amazes me. One of the things that really entertain kids, especially small kids, you know, you get them them little bottles of bubbles, and you dip the thing in there, and you blow the bubbles, and they'll chase those bubbles. And what happens when they touch them? Or what happens if you don't touch them? <laughs> what happens when they hit the ground? You know what happens. They come to their quick end, and it's done. Well, you go back, and you just keep doing that process over and over again. But it's kind of like, you know, life is kind of like that. You're chasing one bubble after another. Pretty bubbles. And they never accomplish anything. Or at least that's way, the way that it seems. And that is the way that it will be if we're chasing material things in our life. The main point of the book is the importance of serving God throughout life. And if we can truly come to see the vanity of this world and the material things within it, then we're more able to see God for who He is. And that's one of the objectives, to draw our hearts closer to Him. We pointed out that in the quest for satisfaction, there are a lot of things that simply we cannot find satisfaction in. Amusements, wine, work, wealth, women, wisdom. Nothing can bring satisfaction. And trying to understand the purpose of it all, without God in the picture, we can't. It's really that simple. There is a purpose and order for everything under the sun, and we are subject to the things beyond our control. We do not control the circumstances in our life. We are very limited in the things, in fact, that we can control. Really, the only thing that we have control over is our response to those things. That is it. And so God makes everything beautiful in its season, in its purpose, 
And he wants us to moderately enjoy these gifts with keeping him in mind, with keeping him first in our life, and seeking to please him in all that we do. And remember, God is in control. God is in control. Okay, now keep that in mind as we read beginning in verse 16 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Keep that in mind. God is in control. Beginning in verse 16, Moreover I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the, wicked, the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them, as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals. For all is vanity, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see see what will happen after him? Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who were already dead, more than the living who were still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again I saw that for all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asked, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though he may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come after were will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And that concludes chapter 4. And you may think, well, that's a bunch of different stuff in there, isn't it? He talks about a lot of different things. And so I've kind of boiled it down to this. The wise man is considering a lot of different problems that face us in life. You know, one of the amazing things about this book is that it is very contemporary. The problems that Solomon saw and understood as he observed 
Mankind and the things that take place under the sun are things that still happen today. The principles are still ever-present with us. The same problems exist. So what about some of the problems? The problem of problems is a real one. And in this that we just read, first we saw the problem of injustice. Then we saw the problem of death. Then the problem of oppression. And after that, the problem of self-inflicted wounds and the problem of being alone. The problem then of the transitory nature of fame, of power, and of prestige. And as he thinks about all these problems, what he concludes is this. You know, it's just best to just do what you can do with what you have where you are. Be happy with where you are and what you have. And seek to fulfill all these things because the bottom line is we're all going to stand before God in judgment. And he does mention that in this text. So with that in mind, listen, the things that make up life, there are injustices, there's loneliness, there's oppression, there's death, all kinds of problems that we face in life. All kinds of problems. How do we respond to these problems? First of all, I want to ask this question. Is there a purpose for these problems? That's an interesting question, isn't it? A lot of people ask that. If there is a God, why do we have so many problems? Why does injustice exist? Why does oppression exist? And then why you have all the natural calamities that we have? The Hebrew uses the infinitive lebharam, which from borrow, which means to separate a window to prove. At verse 18, it says, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests, God tests, God separates, God winnows, God proves men. And he does this through the problems that we face. You ask, well, what, are the pur- what is the purpose of problems? To test us. To separate us from the ungodly. Or, you know, to separate the godly from the ungodly. Or the ungodly from the godly, however you want to look at it. But there's a separation. People are certainly tested when we suffer injustices, oppression, trials. When we look at the reality of death. When we look at the problems of life. We are going to have to face these problems eventually. And we're going to have to make some choices. What is in the heart is quickly manifested when you put it to the fire. Right? Our faith is tested. First Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about our faith being tested and tried as silver or gold. As a valuable metal that is put to the heat. And all the impurities are cleansed from it. Problems purify us or they destroy us. God's desire is that our hearts are turned to Him in desperate dependence upon Him. With an unmovable trust in Him. And a reliance for His providence and His care. God is... For us and not against us, right? 
And he is secure. He provides security in the midst of whatever turbulence is going on in life. The concept of peace is a prominent concept in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 3 and 4, especially chapter 4. Peace. The peace that we have in Christ. The peace that passes all understanding. You know, that peace that Paul is talking about is not peace apart from turbulence or trials. It is peace in the midst of the fire of persecution and hardship. And so there is a purpose for the trial. The same sun that hardens clay melts butter, right? And so the same trial may purify and increase one's faith in God and his dependence upon God, while, the, while at the same time move other people further away from God and destroy their faith and destroy them. Now you think, well, that's just not fair. No, that is fair. It is fair in that God's desire is that we trust Him. And really what He's doing is He is separating the faithful from the unfaithful. The godly from the ungodly in the process. So, with that in mind, He says in verse 16, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment wickedness there, and in the place of righteousness iniquity was there. In other words, those who had positions of authority and power, they were abusing them. Injustice is briefly mentioned here. It's mentioned again several times later in the book. He keeps revisiting this problem because it's a big one. It always has been and it always will be. Anticipating an objection from what he had just said in chapter 3, you know, you go back up, there, there's a purpose, there is a time for everything under heaven. Who is it that's in control? It's God. Really? Well, then why do you have all these problems, Solomon? <laughs> why do you have all these problems, preacher, if God is in control? Well, because he has a reason for these problems. You don't have any business questioning God anyway. So he's anticipating an objection to this fact. God, if God does rule, then why do we have all these problems? And Solomon is acknowledging these problems. In fact, you know, you go, you go back to the book of Habakkuk. And this, this would be a good homework assignment. Go back to Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In fact, read the whole chapter. And there Habakkuk is dealing with the same problem. It just doesn't seem fair that God is punishing his people with ungodly nations. That just doesn't seem to follow. But... We, do we understand God's purpose of it all? And God's righteousness. God is actually judging righteously. We're not so good at that judging righteously stuff. Because we don't have all of the information. We don't have all of the facts. We don't know it all. So, injustice occurs, especially... When God is kicked out of the realms of those in authority, when you have ungodly ruling, what kind of justice system are you going to have? We ought to have, and we need to have, godly rulers. We need righteous and fair-minded people. We need to have those who are just, 
in positions of authority and power. And our judges need to be just and fair, impartial, right? But instead, too often we have liars, thieves, criminals, who the only thing they're interested in is the advancement of their agenda and especially the thickening of their pocketbook. That's all they care about. The increase in their bank account. And who is going to give them the next handout? Who is going to give them the next bribe? Whoever has the bigger bribe gets the judgment. The wealthy and powerful defeat justice with their bribes or threats. The double standards abound. You know, I, that's one thing. It just bothers me to no end, all the double standards that exist. You watch the TV news. You wa- listen to the media. And it, you watch one channel over here, and they're over here on one side. You watch another channel. They're over here on this side. And I've noticed this, brethren, listen, and it happens on both sides. Double standards. Our side can never be wrong, but when our side is wrong, oh, wait a minute, no, we can explain that one. Wait a minute, our side can never be wrong, but wait a minute, when they are wrong, we can explain that one. There are double standards. Listen, my friend, right is right, wrong is wrong. And I don't care who it is. If they've done wrong, they ought to stand before a judge and be held accountable. I don't care who it is. That applies to everybody. But I see the double standards, and they're pretty amazing sometimes when you step back and look at them. But we see this in our culture and society, and I'll tell you why that is. There is no fear of God in their eyes. You want to get right down to it? That's it. God will judge. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. The point is, the time is coming when judgment is going to happen. And all these unjust judges are going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get justice. And they're not going to like it. The time is coming where they will reap what they have sown. God will judge. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, all men will stand, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things they've done in their body, whether good or bad. You go to Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. One of the things that, that Paul emphasizes there is that God's judgment is going to be just. Those who have done evil, they're going to be condemned. They're going to be punished. Those who have done good, they will be rewarded. That's the way it's going to be. And verse 11 makes it very clear. There is no impartiality with God. He's not going to have a double standard. Uh, well, look, you, you know, you, I don't care who you are, but you, if we're thinking, you know, look at all the stuff I've done, but yet you yourself have committed sin, he's not going to overlook your sin while you look down your nose at somebody else who you think is living a very sinful lifestyle, sin is sin. You are going to be judged according to your works. And God's going to be fair. He's going to do what's right. And He's not going to hold you to a better standard. So don't think that you can stand before God and bargain with Him or bribe Him or intimidate Him to pervert judgment in your case. It ain't going to happen. God 
will avenge. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 9, those of you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of his glory and from his power. It's going to happen. So the day is coming when God is going to make all wrongs righted. He's going to take care of all this injustice, and people will get what's coming to them. Now, he goes on then and he reflects, okay, with all of the injustice that's going on, with all of the ways in which man has mistreated man, you go back historically. And, you know, we can go back in this country and we can talk about injustices that have taken place in the South. We can talk about injustices that took place when America you know, became a nation and as it continued to grow with Native Americans. We can talk about injustices and we can just go on talking about injustices forever. Because before that, you had other injustices. I mean, even more recently, you had the Holocaust. Injustices. You go back way before that, you, you can find death camps, you can find, you can find one nation trying to annihilate another nation as far back as history will take you. Injustices abound in human history. And when you look at all the ways that men mistreat men, you kind of get discouraged and you say, you know what, it's just be you're just better off dead. You know what? In fact, it's better if you had never existed to begin with. That's what Solomon says. When you look at all of the injustices of man, uh, it's just better off if we'd not existed at all. But he does point out, look, we die just like the animals. And you seek power, you seek, you seek judgment on your behalf, you know, and you, you try to get what you want selfishly and obtaining those things unjustly, then you die. <laughs> Just like the animals do. Physically, humans and animals go to the same place, right? Go back to the dust of the ground. Humans and animals, I don't care whether it's a dog, a cat, or an elephant, or a giraffe, they all go to the same place. But, in fact, look at verse 21 in particular. He makes mention the fact to, of the fact that you know, there is a difference between men and animals. Again, you know, he, he makes the point and makes it very clearly. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. So the body goes back to the earth. The body goes back to the dust. But there is a spirit in man that goes upward. And so this verse 21 is intended to be a corrective to the potential misinterpretation, which, by the way, Jehovah Witnesses do misinterpret, and others, you know, they believe that when you die, you're like Rover. That's all. You're just dead. Um, but Solomon certainly doesn't teach that. When you die, your spirit goes upward. Just like later in chapter 12, he makes the point that the body returns to the dust of the ground and the spirit returns to God who gave it. He clears it up very well in chapter 12. Which other passages do as well? Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. We understand through a study of other scriptures that the, we are different than the animals. But if you're just looking at what you can see, 
If you're just looking at things under the sun, you know what? That rich man who had all that power, who perverted justice, who took advantage of everybody he possibly could, uh-oh, there he is in the ground. You dig him up and he's got worms eating his flesh. He's done. And there's his dog lying there beside him. What happens to one happens to all. And so if you're just looking at it from the earthly perspective, there you go. But, then verse 22, the preliminary conclusion of verse 12 is now appropriately reiterated. That is, man is not master of his own lot, right? Of all the things we talked about last time, things that happened under the sun, we don't control those things. And so I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, okay, with what God gives him, the time in which he is, and the things that God gives him while he is, to use those things for God's glory, of course, but to use those things moderately, moderately for his pleasure. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? All the things that you may seek to acquire in life, and Solomon talked about this earlier, and he'll, he'll talk about this later again. You accumulate, and you, you accumulate, and you die, and then it goes to somebody who doesn't respect it, and it's all gone. So, enjoy it. We are powerless to control the forces around us. So, why worry about it? Why be concerned about it? Jesus deals with this very issue in Matthew 6, verses 24 through 34. That's why we ought to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Because moth and rust doesn't corrode and destroy those things that we lay up in heaven. Thieves cannot break in and steal those things that we lay up in heaven. And you cannot die and leave behind those things that you lay up in heaven. So we need not worry about things over which we have no control. We should not worry about the material things and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Leave that to God. Trust in Him. Follow Him. All we can do is enjoy the present. Enjoy the blessings of God. Use them to make our life the best that it can be. Avail ourselves to the bounties in the, which the mercy of God places before us. Enjoy the moments. Because you know what happens. The moments pass away. A young couple comes up before the Lord, before a preacher, and they say their I do's and they're joyful, they're happy, they leave united in marriage, and their life is just beginning. You know what happens to that life? It begins to go through a series of changes. It's not long until more than likely there's a little one that comes along, and then all the focus shifts from themselves to that little one, and things begin to change. There's a new focus. There's a new energy in the household. But then that child begins to grow. And the next thing you know, that child becomes a teenager. And what was so wonderful just 13 years earlier <laughs> takes on a whole new meaning. So life changes. But still enjoy that. Enjoy that child. Teach that child. Form a relationship with that child that will never end. You know, don't worry about the things that you can't control. Enjoy today. 
Take advantage of what you have today. And by the way, again, the spiritual things are the things we must focus on. When we lose our perspective and we begin to focus on material things, matters of enjoyment or entertainment or recreation and those kinds of things, when those kinds of things begin to interfere with our service to God, we've got a problem because we are chasing those little bubbles that just float away. And it's going to destroy us if we're not careful. But remember that. So then we get into chapter 4 and the problem of, of the oppressed. And we're going to move on now through chapter 4 because it's really just one series of, of problems after another that it deals with. I return and consider all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look at the tears of the oppressed. But they have no comforter. Okay, so you go back to this concept of injustice and the oppressor. And who is it that's going to help the oppressed? Who's going to lift them up? He points out this is a great evil. This is wrong. And the oppressed are so often ignored. They are ignored as being insignificant, especially by those who are in power and in control or authority. Those who have died are no longer oppressed by evil men. And that's what he's getting at. And, and he emphasized, you know, they're better off dead. He's not considering their spiritual state. He's just making the point. Listen, it is better off for those who are oppressed by men. They're better off to die than to continue to be persecuted and oppressed. Better never to have been born even than to experience oppression, suffering, and persecution. This is a great evil, he says. It is a real problem. But again, God's going to take care of that, right? Go back to chapter 3, verse 17. God's going to take care of that. Keep that in mind. God is still in control. Then he turns on to the problem of self-inflicted problems. <laughs> Beginning in verse 4. He says, again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Well, we, you know, want to keep up with the Joneses. We want to have what they have. And envy motivates us to spend even more and spend even more to go further in debt, which is going to cause problems. And then you want this, and you want that, and you want this, and you want that, and you're chasing the wind out of envy, out of greed, out of covetousness. And it just creates more problems. The NASB says every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Keeping up with the Joneses is what he's talking about. All labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, the NIV says. And then he says in verse 5, And the fool, the fool consumes himself. The fool holds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Well, what does that mean? It means he's seeking to keep up with his neighbor. And he's stingy holding on to what he has. And there is a rivalry that, that, that he's focused on that he cannot get around and it just consumes him. The fool consumes himself. The value then of contentment is what is emphasized. Look again, look in verse 6. Better a handful of quietness than both hands full of together with toil and grasping for the wind. The fool is toiling and grasping for the wind. 
and thus he consumes himself. But better a handful with quietness. That is peace within. That is accepting what is and be content with what you have. That is the idea that is being advocated by the wise man here. And then he turns to the selfish miser. Look at verse 7. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asked, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. He is alone, he's unsatisfied, he's unhappy, and he's just continually chasing. He's going around and around and around that hamster wheel. Not getting anywhere, and he's very unhappy because he's all alone. He's pursuing things to spend upon his selfish lust, his desires, and he's accomplishing nothing in the process with nothing to enjoy in life. How sad that is. It's kind of like that rich man who looked out at his, his fields and said, look what I have. Look what I've done. I'm going to build myself bigger barns. And then, uh, you know, it's all about him. There's the picture. Winds up alone, miserable, and eventually dead. Then the problem of loneliness is discussed in verses 7 through 12, which is springing off of this miserly attitude. There is the importance of the value of a friend. Verse 9, we need friends. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. It's much better to have a partner and a companion. And of course, if one falls, then the other can help pick them up, right? I've always heard, don't go hunting by yourself, although I do that quite often. But it's really not a good idea, you know, to get down there away from everybody. At least there are people that live there just right up the road that I know, that I can call, that I can get a hold of if necessary. But, okay, you need to have a friend that can help you. And then again, companionship is helpful and profitable. Verse 11, again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. Okay, you're going to benefit from being beside another person or with another person. That's just good for you. A friend provides strength in times of trouble. When you are feeling a, a weakness for something that you shouldn't do and your friend says, uh-uh, don't do that, man. You need those kind of friends, by the way. You need those kind of friends that will tell you warn you, and get on to you when you're fixing to do that which is wrong. That's a friend. The importance of unity, the threefold cord, is not easily broken. That's just practical wisdom there, isn't it? So then he moves on in the last three verses, four verses of our text, the insecurity of a high position. There's a problem of fame and prestige. You know, he says in verse 13, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. What does that mean? Well, sometimes rulers forget who they serve and they're just serving themselves. 
and eventually they are forgotten themselves. They're not admonished anymore. They don't get any praise anymore. Nobody likes them anymore. And now you have ruled, and now you're miserable because you're not getting the accolades. The people are turning against you. They want another king. You know what? You know how many kings in history? You go back in the Old Testament. How many kings in history who actually experienced this? You know, they would reign for a little while, and people would get tired of them, try to overthrow them. David himself found himself in this position. His own son wanted to usurp authority over, to dethrone him. But of course, in the northern tribes, and especially in other worldly kingdoms, you know what happened? It was not a good idea sometimes to become a king or an emperor. Because at that point in time, people began to want to kill you. They wanted you dead. They would poison you. They would stab you. They would do anything they could to kill you and take your power away from you. The problem of fame and prestige. You know, you, you watch these, these stars, music stars, movie stars, actors, you know, people who are very famous. You know, it's sad to see them, you know, when they, if they ever do come clean about their life, it's just filled with so many problems. You know, so much so that so many of them take their own life because they're not happy. In fact, they're downright depressed. Everywhere they go, they can't just go to a grocery store like you and I can, you know, and walk in and buy some milk, some bread. They, they can't go and do the things that we do. They have to have bodyguards, you know, the paparazzi is everywhere taking pictures. They, they lose their freedom. They lose their privacy. It's, it is not fun. And that's really some of the, 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 the mindset that Colette is getting to here. Uh, people turn to another, you know, one who is in rule, in rule or in authority or in a position of prestige and power or prominence. You know, I don't care who it is. Uh, I just saw or heard this morning that, you know, the Los Angeles Lakers are not going to make the playoffs. just breaks my heart. Not really, but I don't really care about the Los Angeles Lakers one bit. But I know a lot of people were so, so thrilled that LeBron James went to the Los Angeles Lakers. You know what? I don't think, you know, in Los Angeles especially, You've got uh, all these movie stars who contribute to the, to the basketball pro, uh, program and everything. All the millions of dollars that are pouring in there. They're not happy with LeBron James right now. You know what? People loved you a couple of years ago. Time's going to come when you're not that good anymore. People will forget you. They will throw you under the bus. In fact, they will despise you. The problem of fame and prestige. This king that Solomon mentions, okay, they, they forget who they serve. For one, that's one problem. Then verse 14, you know, then people come along and they turn to another king thinking that they're going to be sympathetic to their needs. So they, they dethrone the one and they enthrone somebody else and they all follow him for a little while. But then the next generation comes along and they experience the same thing that they experienced with the previous king. That's just the way it goes. Just the way it goes. Who wants to be led by a leader who doesn't appreciate them? Nobody. 
But who wants to lead and not be appreciated? Nobody. You know what? We've got really both of those problems in this country. We have had. We've, we've got people who lead who don't appreciate the people. And we've had people who lead who were not appreciated for what they did. And sometimes I wonder, why in the world would anybody who wants to do good, who wants to do what's right, who wants to lead this country in a way that is godly, who in the world would want to be president in the way things are right now? I wouldn't. But that's the way it goes, right? It is foolish to, be, to forfeit godliness to lead men. It's foolish to place our hopes in human leaders, by the way. That's foolishness. We need to recognize that we don't have a kingdom here. And it's becoming more and more obvious to me that we don't have a kingdom here and that we need to focus more on the kingdom of heaven. The problem of problems, the problem of injustice, the problem of death, the problem of oppression, the problem of self-inflicted wounds, because of what we're seeking, we bring harm to ourselves. Because the problem of being alone because we have destroyed our relationships, because we have pursued things that are destructive to our relationships, the problem of the transitory nature of fame and prestige, we get what we're after, and then it's all gone. It's like chasing little bubbles. God desires that we turn in our hearts to Him. Why the problems? So it, it teaches us how desperate we are, how needful we are for his providential care, how much we depend upon him. His providence, his care, and in his care we find security because, you know, his providential care provides things for us to enjoy, but if we have the proper understanding and the proper trust in him, it doesn't really matter what our circumstances are. Because we're looking for something better. We're like those men of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 13. You know, there is a kingdom that is not of this world. And we, we, have, a, we, we have opportunity to hold on to the things in this world. But because we trust in God. And because we know that he has prepared for us a home that is beyond this world. We follow Him, we serve Him, we submit to Him, and we have hope, and we can experience joy, real joy in life. We can find happiness in the things of this world. My, how terrible it must be to be an atheist. How depressing that is. Now there's the book of Ecclesiastes uh, from a negative perspective. That's all you got, man. It's dust at the end of the road. In fact, you got a lot worse than that, and you better wake up to it. And you've got happiness, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's provision for our salvation, for our eternal rest, for our peace. It's only in Christ that we have hope. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to realize, you know, stop chasing the bubbles and turn to the Lord. Trust Him and follow Him. That's your only hope. That makes life worth living, by the way. If we can help you in a way, you need to be baptized, whatever your need may be tonight. Won't you come while we stand, while we sing?